Thank you, Luke. Well, go ahead and take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Revelation. It has been almost a year since I've said those words. Turn to Revelation. We had uh, an amazing plan in 2019 to begin our sermon series through Revelation. We we're going to do it a little bit quicker than most sermon series we do, and uh, we we're going to really enjoy just a, a flyby view. And then March 2020, when things started to change and COVID happened and we went to online only, I felt like it would not be appropriate to continue our sermon series in Revelation because we needed to talk about anxiety, we needed to talk about worry, we needed to talk about fear, we needed to talk about all those different aspects of what we all were going through, feeling, processing together. And then we were still online and I had been reading through the book of Habakkuk and really wanted to preach on lament because we knew there was a lot of sorrow that was happening around the world. There was a lot of sorrow in uh, our church family. There were people that were uh, dying. There were relatives that were close relatives and family friends that were passing away. So we wanted to stop and we wanted to learn how to lament. Uh, we went through uh, the book of Jonah, uh, a very familiar minor prophet, but one that I believe we just get the message wrong. So we spent some time in Jonah. And then we also spent some time in the Passion Week. Uh, many people were like, why are we doing the Passion Week in fall when uh, we're supposed to do Passion Week in uh, the spring for Easter? And we went through that because of things that I had to finish with my, my doctorate, and I really appreciate all of your help on that. And so here we are finally, after Christmas and after the start of the new year, diving back into Revelation. And we dive back into probably the most appropriate chapter that we could dive into in the entire book. Revelation chapter 4. Most of you, if not all of you, have seen the movie The Wizard of Oz. Remember in that movie, the um, main characters are making their way to see the wizard, right? The wonderful Wizard of Oz, and they need help. They need courage, they need a brain, they need a heart, they need to find out how they can get home. They need something from this wizard. Then finally, when they make their way all the way to the wizard, they find out, remember the man behind the curtain? Don't pay attention to the man behind the curtain. They find out that this wizard was just wielding uh, behind this curtain all of these different gadgets and all these different tools to manipulate and make himself look bigger and make himself look this you know, all-powerful wizard. And what they found out from this wizard, who was all just a, a sham, was that they didn't need anything from him. They actually found along the way in the journey that they had everything that they were looking for from him already residing inside of them. They didn't need him. They were self-sufficient on their own. I believe that that is a parable for the way that we tend to live life, erroneously so, but we tend to live life thinking that God is some wizard up in heaven pulling on some strings and some levers and some pulleys and doing things that make it look majestic, but maybe he's not as majestic as we think, and we really don't need him. We pray, we sing, we do things that uh, explain that we need him, but in actuality, we really just have everything that we need residing in us, and we find ourselves being so self-sufficient and an expanding sense of self-sufficiency always leads to a decreased sense of awe. So this morning, what we are going to do is fight against this tendency. 
We're going to fight against this tendency for self-sufficiency by going into the throne room of heaven. Chapter 4 of Revelation is a scene. It's a, it's a scene change of enormous significance. We lift our eyes off of the churches that were in Revelation, those seven churches on earth in chapter 2 and 3. We lift our eyes and we're welcomed into the throne room of heaven. And so from heaven, from earth to heaven we go. I want to read this chapter and ask God's blessing on our time as we dive in this morning. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, John writes, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. And immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone, and a sardius in appearance. There was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were 24 elders, 24 thrones, and upon those thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center of, and around the throne, four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion. The second creature like a calf. The third creature had a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power because you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. Let's pray together. Father, we, every morning, every Sunday morning that we gather together on the Lord's Day, we are standing on holy ground as we look into your word. We have been invited into your family as adopted sons and daughters, and we've been, been invited into your throne room to hear from the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords every Sunday. And yet this morning just feels a little different. As not only are we ushered in, but we get to see John being ushered in, and we get to hear the descriptions 
what it's like to be in heaven. And John is so overwhelmed that he can't even fully express what he's seen. He can't fully describe it. He's not even fully aware of all of it. Father, if the Apostle John were here this morning and we were to ask him, okay, John, what are we supposed to get out of this chapter? I believe he would say, what a privilege it is to know this God. Father, may we quake inside, may as we stare at awe and glory and as we're filled with wonder, may we tremble as we are truly on holy ground. May we tremble before you and then may we see the gospel that enables us to stand in your presence. And may we sing the song of the angels, of the 24 elders. We sing the song, holy, holy, you are completely set apart and you are worthy to receive all power, all authority, honor, praise. God, get our eyes off of ourselves and get our eyes on you and you alone. This is a work that we desire, but it is impossible to happen if your spirit does not make it so. So Holy Spirit, open our eyes and fix them on Christ. Show us marvelous things from your word this day. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. John writes, after these things. After these things. What are the these things? It's really everything that was covered in chapter 1, 2, and 3, which will allow me just briefly to do a bit of a review of where we've been. Again, it's been almost a year since we started this study, so I want to go back. We began by just doing an introduction to the whole book of saying, why are we doing this study? We gave seven reasons. You can go online. You can find all these sermons. I'm going to do this very briefly, very quickly. But seven reasons why we're even spending time studying this book. Reason number one, Revelation is for our benefit. It's written for us. Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, and 22, verse 27. So the book ends of the whole book. They all give a blessing. They pertain a blessing. You read this, and you're blessed if you read it and if you do it. So it's for us. It's for our benefit. Number two, we can understand it. We can understand Revelation. It's meant to be understood. It's apocalyptic literature. Apocalypse, that's just the Greek word for revelation. It means an unveiling or a revealing. These are things that are meant to be revealed. It's apocalyptic, not apocryphon. Apocryphon or apocryphal, that's to hide. That's to cover. This isn't apocryphal. This is apocalypse. This is Uh, know it, understand it, it's for you. Yes, there are challenges in it, mainly because there are so many genres in this book. It just keeps on moving around from poetry to prose to epistle. It's just moving all over the place, and that's why we just say it's apocalyptic literature. It gets its own genre in the entire Bible. But we do have the Old Testament, which is the control system to guide our understanding and interpretation of Revelation. So we're not going to do any newspaper exegesis. We're not going to do headline hermeneutics. We are going to study the Bible and let the Bible tell us what Revelation is describing. But we can understand it. The third motivation is Revelation reminds us that there's no middle ground. Revelation reminds us there's no middle ground. 
you are either going to spend eternity in the lake of fire or you are going to spend eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. Those are your only options. There's no middle ground. There's no uh, second choice. And this, in turn, should, must motivate us to be faithful in evangelism. It's the only reason we're here, brothers and sisters. We can do everything better in heaven except for evangelizing the lost. We need to see every soul around us as either going to heaven or going to hell. This book will help sober us up. A fourth reason was uh, Revelation gives encouragement and exhortation for a church which is under attack. We can't understand what this book means until we understand what it meant. We have to go back to the original recipients. And we've been doing that as we were going through it to understand that the church was under physical persecution, religious compromise, and materialistic seduction. They were struggling in those three areas. I believe those three words, those three phrases define the modern American church. Maybe not physical persecution yet, but absolutely religious compromise and materialistic seduction. They were being attacked from every angle, and I believe that uh, either we are currently or we will be in the near future. The fifth reason was that Revelation provides a perspective that is cosmic and transcendent. This book is just filled with gravitas, even as we're going to study this morning in chapter 4. There's so many places that this book is so filled with gravitas that everyone in heaven has to be silent. Just think about that for a second. Angels in heaven who saw God make the world, they have to be silent at what's taking place in this book. It's so glorious and filled with awe that they can't even speak. A sixth reason was that the revelation of Jesus Christ in this book encourages us to reflect on our own worship of God. There's more singing in this book than any other book of the Bible except for Psalms. This book is so full of singing. And the songs in heaven are very wordy. They have a lot of words. They're deep in doctrine and theology. They're all about Jesus and all about the Godhead. And they specifically look at three aspects. God is creator, God is savior, and God is judge. And everyone who sings, there's no one singing in heaven who is indifferent. There's nobody who is unengaged in heaven. And the reason why is the unengaged and indifferent people don't go to heaven. Right? If you are unengaged and indifferent, you would hate heaven because heaven is all about God. It's all about Jesus. It's all about savoring the glory of God. And so Revelation will help us to understand true worship, to engage in true worship. It will help us to throw away those trivial things that we tend to bicker and argue about. Uh, you know, the drums are too loud, or I wish these songs were different, or I don't like this. It'll throw those away, and it will focus our understanding as we worship through song on the two most important aspects of worship through song, content and passion. That's, that's what matters as we sing before our great God, content and passion, not emotional empty-headedness, right? We're not just going to be passionate without any good biblical content, but we're also, and I believe this is the danger of our church and churches in the circles that we would tend to run in, we also don't want intellectual empty-heartedness. We want content and passion together. It drives our savoring of Jesus Christ. Finally, number seven, the seventh reason as we introduce the book is Revelation reveals the glorious culmination of God's redemptive story. Revelation reveals the glorious culmination of redemptive history. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. You just can't miss this book 
finishing the whole story of the Bible. You can't miss the Genesis imagery that the last two chapters of Revelation have. There's a, a new garden. There's no more curse. The curse has been lifted, completely reversed, and done away with. God dwells with his people again, just like he did in Eden. There's a tree of life, just like back in Eden. I think John is thinking of Eden constantly as he's writing this, and he's tying up the story. So we started with a sermon on why. It was a little bit of a prolegomena. Why, why do we even have to study this book? Why are we going to go through this book? And then we dove into it. So chapter 1, just turn there just briefly. Chapter 1, we began in chapter 1 by looking at the vision. You remember the vision of Jesus Christ, this resurrected Savior who was dead but is dead no longer. And we saw this amazing imagery that John sees. He falls like a dead man at the feet of Christ. We saw this beautiful, beautiful vision of Jesus. And then at the end, in chapter 1, verse 19, we were given a, a bit of an outline for the whole book. Jesus says, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. So the things that you've seen, that's chapter 1, what you've seen. You've just seen me. Write that down. The things which are, that's chapter 2 and 3. Uh, you could also throw 4 and 5 in there, just what's happening on earth and in heaven at that time, the churches in Revelation. And then the things which will be after this, the things which will take place after this. That's chapter 6 all the way through the rest of the book. So we have a little bit of an outline. And then we started looking at chapter 2 and 3, which are these seven churches in Revelation, which are just profound. We, we spent a lot of time looking at each individual one. And then after looking at each individual church and the letter that Christ himself penned, I mean, these are the epistles of Jesus. I mean, every letter that he himself penned to give to these churches, we spent time looking at them, and then we did an overview of every church, all of these different churches, what they were struggling with, what they were praised for, and what the promises were for those who would overcome. And that leads us to chapter 4. That leads us to chapter 4. So in chapter 4, we're leaving the churches behind, and we're blasting into the throne room of heaven. Before we get future events, which will be chapter 6 all the way to the end of the book, we're going to enter the throne room of heaven. Chapter 4 and chapter 5 make up one vision that's perfectly divided into two parts. And I believe that this is placed right in this book for a very important reason. These chapters aren't written to satisfy our longing or our curiosity to know what's going to take place in the future. We desire to know that, and we go to this book, and we... We want to learn more about the future. But these chapters, 4 and 5, are written to remind us who is sitting on the throne. That's what matters. Who's on the throne? Who's ruling over this chaos? Before we even get into the chaos of chapter 6 all the way through, who's on the throne? Is there somebody who's ruling in the midst of the chaos? And the answer is a resounding yes. God is on his throne. In chapter 4, there are four things that take John's breath away. There are four things that he fixates on and he cannot get off of his mind and he writes about them. We're going to look at just one this morning and then three, Lord willing, next week. So really, there's not much of an outline because there's four things that he sees in chapter four and we're just going to cover one. And I think it's the most important one. It's the foundational one. I, I told our brother Luke, I originally wanted to preach all of chapter four because it's just so amazing. I just wanted to preach it all in one sermon. But we cannot get beyond the first thing that John sees. We need to slow down 
and feel what he's feeling. What is it that he sees? What does he fixate on? What grabs his attention? The first thing that does is the glory and grace of God. The glory and grace of God. Verse 1, after these things I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. It's already opened. John didn't do anything to open it. It's already opened. It's standing open and there's an invitation. Come here. It's, a, it's an invitation. It's also a command, right? You need to do this. But notice, John, you're not going to do any work. I'll do all the work for you. I've opened the door. I've made a way so you can come in. And the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, come up here. That's a command. And I will show you what must take place. I will show you what must take place. So come into the throne room, and I will show you what must take place. Now, why is John being ushered into the throne room? I don't know when the last time you flew on a plane was. My wife and I were able, able to travel a couple times um, this last year. And we both were blown away as we sat in the airport terminal looking at all these planes, just going all over the place, right? Just planes landing, planes taking off, planes taxiing. And my wife just said, why don't more plane accidents happen, right? These things are just crisscrossing all over the place. Where do they, how do they know where they're going? Like, just, it's just nonsense. It looks like pure chaos as you're staring out that window at the terminal. But if you and I were able to walk into that air traffic control center and we could see all of the operators that are there, we could see all of the maps and the descriptions and the routes and, and know there are people that are making sure all these planes are going, where they're supposed to go, when they're supposed to go, we'd look and we'd say, okay, this makes more sense. Now we understand there's somebody in charge of all that chaos out there. That's what God is doing with John, right? God's bringing him into the air traffic control center of heaven. He's saying, look, you see the chaos down there? There's a point, a rhyme and a reason to everything that's happening. And so he's ushered in to heaven. He's ushered in not only to see God controlling everything, but he's also ushered in to hear these little words, the things which must take place. It's not a possibility whether or not revelation is actually going to happen. It will. It must take place. One commentator says, God's sovereignty over all things in life to make this happen. God's sovereignty is a soft pillow for a weary head. And that's why John is ushered in here. With all the chaos, even back then, of all of those seven churches, John is being ushered into heaven to see, no, 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 it's okay. I'm in control, and I know exactly how it's going to play out, and it must play out that way. I know that it's going to. So, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. After the chapter 2 and 3 with the uh, seven churches, and then after 4 and 5. After 4 and 5 in the throne room, I'm going to show you how history will unfold. And immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven. What captures John's attention right away is this throne. A picture of authority, an image of a ruling person. 41 times in the book of Revelation, this word throne is used. Once it's used to refer to Satan's throne, which is in the city of Pergamum. 
But every other time it's used to, to speak of God's throne. Eleven times in this chapter alone, the word throne is used. And there's all sorts of different prepositions that are used about the throne, on the throne, around the throne, from the throne, before the throne, in the throne. Everything flows from the throne. Everything comes from the throne. The throne is the center of heaven. Psalm 9, verse 4, the psalmist writes, You sit on the throne judging righteously. He sits on his throne. John, or Psalm chapter 9, verse 7, The Lord abides forever and has established his throne for judgment. Psalm 11, verse 4, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold and test the sons of men. And Psalm 45, verse 6, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. God's throne seen by John in the center of heaven. And on that throne, he sees one sitting. He sees one sitting. I love that. God isn't pacing around back and forth around the throne, wondering what's going to happen, anxious about, I don't know, it looks like a mess down there. He's at rest. He's at peace. His work is done. And he's unfolding history. He's sitting. And this one who is sitting, verse 3, was like. That word like is so important. Because what John is going to see in this throne room is so hard to describe. Use the old theological word. It's ineffable, right? This is the ineffable glory of God. You cannot even describe it. It can't be explained fully. So he's going to use this word like. It's so important because there's, there's imagery here. There's analogy here. He doesn't even know how to articulate what he is seeing. He has no category for it. He's seeing something that is truly inexplicable. Let me give you an illustration. This would be like if you and I go to Papua New Guinea, a place where people are living practically in, in the Stone Age. And I were to say to you, while we're in Papua New Guinea, go talk to one of these tribesmen and tell them, explain to them what electricity is. How would you do that? How would you explain electricity? You can't use the word electricity because they don't know what that is. They don't have it. So you say, it's powerful. And they go, okay, it's strong. Well, that's, no, I mean, kind of. Uh, it's like a spirit through... Cables and wires. What's a wire? I don't know what a wire uh, It's like through rope. So they get a rope. A rope. Strong rope. And they just hand you, here's our strongest rope. No, that's not it. Just picture like little people running through the rope to help make things happen. And they're looking at you very funny. Little people, what are we talking about? How do you describe what electricity is when there is no category for it? You can't do that with somebody in Papua New Guinea, not because they're dumb, but because you have no category. Uh, this is an even greater expanse between us and those in Papua New Guinea. This is like trying to explain the internet to an ant. Right? There's no words that you can use to describe it. There's no words you can use to truly capture what's happening. How do you describe a God who is more magnificent than anything that you've ever experienced? 
There's really no description of God here. There's only analogies that try to describe him. There's imagery that tries to describe him because it's impossible to truly describe him. And so, with every fiber of his being, he's trying to write down and capture the glory of God. And here's what he says. The glory is like a jasper stone. A jasper stone. This is something like a diamond. It's not opaque. It's not translucent. It's crystal clear. It's sparkling. It's shimmering. It's brilliant. It's costly. And it's like one of our diamonds today. Brilliant. And he's like a, a sardius in appearance. We, we know that word sardius from one of the uh, churches in Revelation in chapter 2 and 3. Some of your translations might say a carnelian. It's the same stone. It's a beautifully deep red stone. And when light would pass through it, it would look like a smoldering fire. So a brilliant white diamond, a clear diamond, and this very, very dark red. And there was a, a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. We know what a rainbow looks like, but this rainbow is not filled with all of the colors. This rainbow just has one color, and it's an emerald color. I love that picture of the rainbow. It immediately takes us back to Noah, right? It takes us back to the promise that God made, that, that promise that God made, I will never destroy the world in the same way with that flood. I'm never going to do that again. But we do know that the world will be destroyed with fire, not with a flood. There's an old Appalachian spiritual that said, God gave Noah the rainbow sign. God gave Noah the rainbow sign. God gave Noah the rainbow sign. Won't be water, but fire next time. So the bow, the rainbow in the sky is as if God takes his bow, like an archer's bow of war and of judgment, and he hangs it up and he says, done for now. But there's a time coming when he will pick it back up and judge the world. So what are these three realities? A jasper stone, clear diamond, a sardius stone, this deep red, and an emerald rainbow. <laughs> what are these images? Well, let me give you a couple options. Some people would say, number one, it could be a representation of God's covenant redemptive relationship with Israel. And the reason that they would get that is Exodus chapter 28, verses 17 through 21. The 12 stones that are on the breastplate of the high priest, Jasper and Sardius are the first and the last. So all encompassing Israel, this is a picture of God's covenant relationship with Israel, that he's not forsaking them, he's not leaving them, and he has a redemptive plan for them. I, I think that that's cute. I, I don't know if it fits because that's not what John is saying here. In fact, explicitly later in the book of Revelation, John is going to show us the explicit relationship that God has with Israel and how he's going to save them and how he's going to bring them to a place of redemption. So I don't think we need that here. I think that what's going to happen later is being read back into these, and we're trying to find some things that are just kind of cute that match up. I, I don't know if that's it. Some people try to go the route of what do these colors describe? And so they ask, uh, what does a clear, pure white, what does that uh, describe? And they think, well, that probably describes holiness. So number one, it might be this uh, image of God's relationship with Israel, this covenant-keeping relationship with Israel. It could be, not my personal interpretation, but it could be. 
Number two, some people think it's the attributes of God. It's displaying the attributes of God. So this is a, a second interpretation. I think it may be a little bit closer. So they, they see this pure, jasper, brilliant, clear stone, this diamond representing no impurities with God, and so therefore it's God's holiness. This red sardius stone, deep red smoldering fire, the fire of God's judgment must represent judgment. And this emerald rainbow, a rainbow is a sign of, uh, I'm not going to destroy the world again this way, so it's a sign of mercy, and green somehow is a color of merciful graciousness. Could it be that? It could be. Again, if we were to ask John, John's standing right here, and we say, John, this is what I think it means. What do you think of what I think of what you wrote? I think John would say, well, those things are true about God. God is holy, God is going to bring judgment, and God is merciful. But I don't know if those are exactly what we're supposed to get from these verses. So it could be God's relationship with Israel. It could be the attributes of God, the representation of the attributes. My question is, why aren't there other attributes? Why are these, why, if these are truly representing the attributes of God, why isn't he seen all of them? Why does he only see these three? There are a lot of questions that I have for the text that will just remain unanswered until we get to heaven ourselves. But here's what we do know. Number three, here's what we do know. So it could be Israel, could be attributes, but here's what we do know, without a shadow of a doubt. And so we'll start with what we know and we'll work backwards. Psalm 104, verse 2, says that God, this is what we sang earlier, God wraps himself with light as with a garment. His glory is so brilliant that it's, a, it's like he's taken light and he's put it around himself and it's shining forth. I don't know if you've ever experienced on a dark evening, maybe close to the middle of the night, and you're trying to grab something from your car, and you go out with your clicker to grab it, and when you press the unlock button, your headlights flash. And I've had the experience of standing right in front of my car. I don't know why this happens over and over with me. I should have learned the first time, but I'm standing right in front of my car. I press the unlock, and the headlights just blast into my eyes such that I'm blinded for five minutes, right? It's like, why did I do that again? I shouldn't have done that. That's what God is doing there. He's wrapping himself with light so much so that he's so brilliant that you can't fully look at him. Ezekiel, in his vision of the throne room, which is very, very similar uh, to John's vision because it's the same throne room, he says that there's brilliant light surrounding God. It's brilliant light. It's like spotlights all around him that you can't really look at it. Moses, you remember when Moses actually spoke face-to-face -face with God. What did he have to do when he walked out of the tent of meeting? He had to cover his face. He had to veil his face because the reflection of the glory of God shone so brightly on his face that his people, Moses' people, all of Israel was saying, don't come near us, we can't see. Your face is shining. And even Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16, which, by the way, he wrote 1 Timothy after he wrote 2 Corinthians 12, and 2 Corinthians 12 tells us about the experience that Paul had of being taken to heaven, so he's also been in the throne room. And then he writes, after that experience, he writes 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16, which says that God dwells in unapproachable light. It's so brilliant, you can't get near it. Maybe you can't even see through it, but it's so brilliant that you can't get near it. That's what we know. So Bible authors, Bible writers are consistently saying, when you are in the presence of God, it's blazing, blinding light. And then, at the end of Revelation, 
Jasper, Sardius, and Emerald show back up. They're all brought back in the new heavens. They're the foundation stones of the new Jerusalem, where there is no temple because the glory of God dwells there. So God's glory is seen in these images of Jasper and Sardius and Emerald. So we know that God dwells in unapproachable light. He wraps himself with light as if it were a garment. And so what John is describing, I think that we can say without a shadow of a doubt, John is describing the glory of God. He's describing the glory of God the best way he possibly can. I don't think he's necessarily describing God's covenant relationship with Israel. I don't think he's even necessarily describing specific attributes of God, though that could be possible. I think he's just describing the glory of God. And I love the way Calvin puts it. Calvin says, all of this that we're reading in chapter 4, all of John's description, it's all, Calvin says, quote, it's all baby talk. It's like a, this is like gibberish. We, we don't even know how to describe it. So we're just using, using gibberish to try and describe it. The glory of this place is so grand that we don't even know what words to use. So ineffable is this glory that we have no category to describe it. We don't ultimately know. But it is very clear, and what we do know, is that God's glory permeates every aspect of this heavenly throne room. We do know it's a place of awe. It's a place of majesty. It's a place of fear and dread. It's a place of judgment and mercy. Could it be the attributes of God? It, it could be. But regardless of what attributes are being uh, noted here, we need to be reminded of the doctrine of the simplicity of God. That doesn't mean God is simple. Rather, it means that what God has is who he is. The doctrine of simplicity of God is what God has is who he is. Another way to say that is God is without parts. The being of God is identical to the attributes of God. Whatever God has, that's who God is. He's not 50% love and 50% wrath. He's not 50% righteousness and 50% judgment. He's all of those things. That's why I would, be, I would tend to be a little bit more careful to describe these specific colors as one attribute of who God is because that kind of goes against, in a stark way, the reality of the simplicity of God. God's everything. So I just say this is God's glory being seen in heaven. So if John is seeing God's glory... What aspects of God's glory are then praised, are then spoken of in the rest of chapter 4? I think that there's four of them. I think there's four aspects of God's glory that are going to ultimately be sung about, spoken of and sung about. Number one is his brilliant holiness. If you drop down to verse 8, God's glory is seen in his holiness. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. He's completely set apart. Holy doesn't just mean sinless. It means set apart, separate. It means completely other than, different than. These angels who are singing, these living creatures that we will talk about next week, they are holy as well. They're sinless, right? And yet they're captivated by God's holiness because it's at a completely different level. God is completely 
different. He's uncreated. Everything else has been made. God is uncreated. That's why they're going to go on to say in verse 11 that God is worthy because he's the creator. He made everything. God's holiness. He is your creator. And he's made rules and laws, and you and I have broken them. Every single day we break them. We choose to sin against God. And that brings about God's perfect justice, right? Go back to that rainbow. This is the second attribute, God's perfect justice, which we're going to see in chapter 5 as well, that there's a lamb who has to be slain in order to be able to do what he's going to do. Why is he slain? Because God is a God of perfect justice. Sin demands death. Sin demands a punishment, right? Our sin demands that somebody be punished. You and I deserve that punishment. So, so richly deserve it. And yet Jesus in his kindness and grace, he takes that punishment for us so that we don't have to bear it or experience it. So we see, number one, God's brilliant holiness. And then we see, number two, God's perfect justice. But then because of that, we see, number three, God's beautiful, amazing grace. I mean, even in just chapter four and five, we're going to see the entirety of what the gospel represents. That there's a God who made you, a God who loves you, a God who wants a relationship with you, and a God who you and I have rebelled against. We've chosen to just do whatever we want to do. We've chosen as R.C. Sproul would say, cosmic treason, wishing that God were dead and we were God. We would be better gods than God himself. Every single sin that we commit is simply going against God's design for us. God made us and designed us to do certain things, to be certain things, and we're saying, I don't like your design. I want to do something else. Whether it's things we think, whether it's things that we say, whether it's things that we do. Anytime that we go against God's design, that's called sin. And the Bible says that the wages of our sin, what we deserve for our sin, is death. Not only physically, but eternally, spiritually, forever. Separation from God forever. And as we will see in the book of Revelation, that is going to happen in the lake of fire. That is going to happen one day in hell for those that choose to reject Jesus Christ. Oh, but my friends, God has made a way for you to be saved. If you are here this morning or you're listening this morning and you don't know that your sins have been paid for, that they have been completely covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, you don't know that you can be forgiven of every single sin you've ever committed, past, present, and future, by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's why he was born. He was born to live a perfect, sinless life, never doing one thing wrong, never ever, ever offending God in any way, but perfectly obeying God's law. He never sinned. And then he went to the cross and bore our punishment on the cross as if he were a sinner. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God the Father made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin. He became sin for you and for me. All of your sin, all of my sin was placed on Jesus so that God the Father could treat Jesus as if he had lived our sinful lives so that we could then be treated by God the Father as if we lived Jesus' perfect life. We don't do anything to earn that. We don't do anything to claim that. We don't do anything to purchase that. We simply say we can't do anything, and we cling by faith in Jesus Christ to his finished work. How am I going to get to heaven? It's only because of Jesus. It's only because of Christ. So we see brilliant holiness. We see perfect justice. We see amazing grace. And my friends, this is the God that we need to bow to now. We need to bow to this God now. But we see one last thing, and we'll close here. 
we see sovereign authority. We see a throne in heaven and a, a God who is reigning and ruling from that throne. We see sovereign authority. So my question for you, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, and this is the God that you worship, he is sitting on a throne. He is ruling, sitting down in heaven, watching everything, and he's ruling over every single molecule. There's no maverick molecule in the universe. He owns it all. My question to you this morning is, do you live as someone whose king is in control of everything? Do you live as somebody who has a king who is in control of everything? If you genuinely believe that, we would functionally live every second of every day differently. No anxiety, no worry, no fear, because our king is on the throne, and he's ruling and he's reigning, and we don't have to be afraid. About a year ago, my son uh, received a birthday present. It was one of my personal favorite birthday presents. It was this amazing TIE fighter. And I think he broke it three days into owning it. And I was a little frustrated because he took my favorite toy and broke it. <laughs> but he brought it to me and said, Dad, I'm so sorry that I broke it. Tears are streaming down his face. And I used that moment to talk with him about things break. We need to take care of things. We need to protect them. We need to be kind. Um, ultimately, in heaven, nothing's going to break. So I used those as teaching moments. And then he went somewhere, and I remember going to the garage, and I tried to fix it. And somehow I was able to fix it, and I brought it back to him. And I said, look, buddy, I fixed it. Put this like, screw right in through the wing. And it was a little bit off, you know, off kilter, but it was okay. And then he said, oh, Dad, that's amazing. He said, you fixed it. I can't believe it was so broken. You fixed it. We hugged, and it was a great moment. A few days later, it was a Sunday right after church, and uh, we had a bunch of people over like we normally do, and some of his friends were in his room, and they were all playing with toys. And one of his friends took a toy, and I don't know how it even happened because when I walked in, it was just shattered. It was like they took uh, an atomic bomb and put it right on the toy and blew it up. It just shattered in pieces. I walked in. I heard this noise. I walked in and thought somebody had fallen from the sky onto the ground. Are, are you okay? And it was this toy. just shattered. And my son's friend said, oh, I'm so sorry. Like, very kind, respectful. I'm so sorry I broke the toy. And I'll never forget. My son goes, oh, that's okay. My dad can fix it. He can fix anything. <laughs> and I just thought, mm, a little little more trust in me than I do. Um, that's unfixable. <laughs> a million pieces shattered everywhere. And as I was thinking about our God being on the throne, that statement's a reality about our dad. Right? Our heavenly father can fix anything. There's nothing too broken for him to mend. There's nothing that is so shattered that he can't pick up the pieces and fix it. So my son can say about me, oh, my dad can fix anything. That's a really nice sentiment, but it sure is not true. But you and I, with our Heavenly Father sitting on his throne, we should live life with a smile on our face knowing oh, our dad can fix anything. He can, and he will. He's promised in the book of Revelation, he is going to wipe every tear from our eyes. 
He will fix it all. So can I ask you this morning, as we stare at God on the throne, what problem in your life, what are you experiencing right now that you're struggling to trust God with that this morning, this moment, right now, you would say, oh no, my God's on the throne and my heavenly father can fix it. Maybe it's a relationship you have with somebody. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's an issue with parenting that you are just so confused about. And you would say this morning, oh no, I know my heavenly father can fix this. He can grant wisdom. He can grant encouragement. He can grant help. Maybe it's an issue at work. Maybe it's an issue with finances. Maybe it's an issue, a thousand different things that could be going on. Maybe it's your health. My heavenly father can fix this. This morning, we need to bow before this God who loves us and who provides assurance to us this morning. He's got this. And he can fix it. Father, we thank you so much for your amazing grace. We've seen a picture of your glory that John just struggles here to even describe. He doesn't know the words that he is supposed to use. He doesn't know the way that he's supposed to describe it. He's struggling. How do I even speak of the glory of God? And so we want with a heart that is full of gratitude and gratefulness, we want to come before your throne and say, you are so far beyond our wildest imagination. Your glory is so amazing. And then we want to be comforted because this God who is so glorious that we can't even describe him, he has condescended to us. He speaks to us. He loves us. And you, oh great God, you have promised that these things in Revelation must take place. They will take place. And we don't have to fear. We don't have to worry. With confident assurance, we can stand in your presence and know you can fix it. So Father, give us peace. Give us encouragement this morning. And as we sing in response, as we behold our God who is sitting on the throne, God, usher us even in our minds now to the throne room who holds the oceans in his hands, who numbers every grain of sand, and who deserves all of the praise and all of the glory, both now and forevermore. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.